This episode of the podcast is being generously sponsored by Gluck Plumbing Service Division. For all your plumbing needs in New Jersey, give them a call at 732-523-1836, extension 1. If anybody would like to sponsor an episode or to support the podcast, and as well as uh, relate any questions or comments about any of the episodes, please email me at svarimchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. This episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Jeffrey S. Gurak, who is the Libby M. Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies of Yeshiva University. He's written many books, but uh, the main ones we're going to be discussing are his books, The Jews of Harlem, and his more recent book, Park Chester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity, which is related in this uh, other books as well. So thank you, Professor Gurak, for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you and your community. That's for sure. So let's start off just in general. You, you, you've written about a lot. You write about American Jewry and in, 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 in general. So how did that happen? How did you get interested in that? And especially you write a lot about New York Jewry. So what, how did that how did that come about? Well, you can immediately hear from my Bronx dialect that I am a New York boy. And um, as far as working on Harlem is concerned, I have to say that, you know, I was a child of the 60s. And I grew up in, the, in an era where Jewish-Black relations changed. You know, so in our family, you know, we kept tabs on the civil rights movement. We mourned, we, we applauded when Dr. Heschel marched with Dr. King. We mourned when Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, two Blacks and, and one Jew, two, excuse me, two Jews and one Black, were killed in 1964. And then I lived through the teacher strike in Brooklyn which split the Jews and the black community. So when I was a graduate student at Columbia University, interested in American Jewish history, I wanted to write a classic work called Jews and Blacks in the Age of Jim Crow from 1896 to 1954. So one of my advisors who happened to be an Israeli said to me, you know, if you want to do a good book about blacks, African-Americans and Jews, why don't you pick areas where they live next door to one another? and not look at what rabbis are doing and ministers are doing and politicians, but, you know, Amcha, people on the street. And he suggested that I study four cities, Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, and Boston. Had I listened to him explicitly, I'd still be working on the book today. But I was at Columbia, and literally, I looked out the window at Fairweather Hall, into the bluff, into, the, into Harlem. I said, there it is, study Harlem. Okay. As it turns out, I've written two books about Harlem. First was called When Harlem Was Jewish, 1870 to 1930, which was my doctoral dissertation, became my first book. And uh, you know what? As I did the book, I realized that I, at, at my gut, I'm a Jewish historian. And the book is more, the first book, is more about what it means for a Jew to live, to leave the incubator of the Lower East Side and to move to what's called a second settlement neighbor, to move uptown in terms of Jewish identity, in terms of religiosity, in terms of community activities. And the Black Jewish story is the last chapter. And then uh, my publisher, NYU Press, said to me about eight or nine years ago, why don't you update the book? So the Jews of Harlem, soon to be a major motion picture, I'm just kidding, okay, and done by NYU Press, takes the story from 1870 up to 1930 and up to 2010. So it's a much larger book. And it also, you know, uh, as you do more work, you realize that certain things you've left out and some things you want to put in and some things you want to change. Oh, there's one other piece to the story. Uh, my father, my late father, who would be 110 today, grew up in Harlem. And in the first book, since it was my first foray into scholarship, you know, you don't write about your family. But in this book, I do have two paragraphs about my father growing up, and I want to tell you two family stories that are important. Number one, I always say that my father grew up on Park Avenue, but it's 100th Street and Park Avenue, 
in a cold water tenement. These were poor Jews who lived uptown. And he shared a bed with four of his brothers. There were six boys and one girl, very typical Jewish immigrant family in that regard, right? So I, it was important for me to emphasize in both books that Harlem is a community both for Jews who've made it and moved uptown and poor Jews like the Guraks who were forced out of the Lower East Side because there was no room down there due to urban renewal efforts that go haywire, you know, which is a contemporary problem to this day, and lived a very, very different existence. Okay. <laughs> the other part of, of my family legacy is my name is Jeffrey S. Gurak. The S is for my Uncle Sam, one of the six brothers, who was a bootlegger who ran with Waxy Gordon's gang and had to flee the country to avoid arrest. Now there was a TV show, HBO called uh, Boardwalk Empire with Waxy Gordon. Uncle Sam didn't appear in the, uh, in, the, in the show. I was annoyed about that. So why is it S? Because my maternal grandmother, the other side of the family, uh, which was a religious family uh, and superstitious to be sure, my maternal grandmother, A, didn't want to be named after a person who died tragically of a botched operation. And secondly, secondly, because he was a criminal. So they, so, and she was angling to name me after her late husband. So my, my real name is Yisrael, Sruli. And in English, it's Jeffrey. Uh, Jeff, Jeffrey, by the way, if you don't know it, is a typical post-World War II Jewish first name. So there's a family dynamic in that too. So, uh, so uh, I'm writing about two different groups of Jews. Jews who make it and move uptown, and Jews who are forced out uh, uptown. Listen, your your listeners, your 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 crowd. Uh, there's a classic immigrant novel written by Abraham Kahan called "The Rise of David Levinsky." David Levinsky, according to Kahan, who was a socialist, listen carefully, was a poor and semi-honest yeshiva bacher who makes his money and moves uptown as a real estate operator. Why is he semi-honest? Because Kahan's a socialist and he doesn't like religious Jews, right? So the question I raised in the book, in both books is, so which story is true? The Gurak story or the Levinsky story? And the answer is both stories are true. There are two different Jewish communities in terms of their orientation towards Yiddishkeit and how they live as an American. But the bottom line is, what is American Jewish history all about? American Jewish history is how you come to a free country and all the challenges of maintaining your Jewish identity, where yes, there's anti-Semitism to be sure, but where you're generally accepted. Do you sustain your Judaism? Do you abandon your Judaism? Or do you modify your Judaism in a variety of different ways? And it's all in my Harlem books. So that's, that's why I've been intrigued by Harlem. And finally, I'll say, we have much more to talk about. Everyone, almost all of my major books follow the Harlem story, both chronologically and topically, as I've moved through other eras in New York Jewish history. So it's been a 50-year platonic love affair with Harlem that I continue to talk about and think about and, uh, and visit and, you know, uh, one of the things that's gone on in Harlem is that uh, uh, some of the synagogues that became churches are no longer there. They've been torn down to make way for a gentrified neighborhood, which is sad for me because I, you know, I, I do a tour and I say, well, look at this place. This is where the synagogue used to be. I used to say this is where the synagogue used to be. Today's a church. Well, it's no longer a church or a synagogue because of urban renewal. Now, let me ask you. You, you mentioned all your books really follow on New York. So it, why why is that? What do you feel is special about the relationship between the Jew, Jews and New York and New York City? Or is it just that you live in New York, you're from New York, you teach in New York, so you just stuck with New York the whole way through. It just happened to be, like you said, you didn't work on Detroit, Baltimore, Boston, et cetera. Right. Or is there special well, something to you? There's something special about New York, first from a Jewish point of view. It, it, is, it, was, the, it was the largest Jewish community in the entire world. Uh, of course, uh, today, uh, I think Tel Aviv has more Jews than New York, but greater New York has more Jews, etc. So uh, if you want to study American history, one of the 
touchstones is the New York experience. But again, you have to be, one of the great debates among historians like myself is, if you write about New York, are you aware of other communities? Because you can be so New York centric as to lose track of the fact that there's a different experience for Jews living elsewhere. If you live in New York, you know, uh, in one of my books, I, I did a book, uh, one of my books called Jews of Gotham. I interviewed a basketball player, very famous Jewish basketball player named Adolf Dolph Shays. And for the uninitiated, he was the number one scorer in the NBA before a tall fellow named Will Chamberlain came along, okay? And he grew up on the Grand Concourse. And he said, when I, in the 30s and 40s, he went to Clinton High School, High School, then he went to NYU uptown. And he said, growing up, I thought the whole world was Jewish, even though statistically only eight out of 10 people in the neighborhood was Jewish, right? And you know what? He said, I never went to a synagogue. I had no Jewish education. I was never bar mitzvahed. So I said, Duff, what was your Jewishness? He says, my Jewishness was I walked the, the streets of my neighborhood, the butcher shops, kosher butcher shops, the bakeries, kosher bakeries. He didn't care, but they were kosher bakeries, right? The garment stores, etc. And it's only when he got older and he moved elsewhere that he had to find a very different Jewish identity. He has since, he recently passed away, but he ended his life living in Syracuse, New York. And he became a very affiliated Jew in a conservative synagogue because he needed to identify Jewishly. If you live in New York, just walking the streets of your city, it's a very special, you know, different type of life. And by the way, it could end up being a very parochial life. You don't see the rest, rest of the world. So, you know, I'm a Jewish historian. I'm an American historian. I love New York. And, uh, and you know, look, from a marketing point of view, almost everybody in America has some connection to New York City. Love it or leave it or, or, or hate it, whatever it is. So that's been my that's been my career. One of the themes that I'm most interested in is the is Jewish life in the greatest city in America, and the lot and Harlem. By the way, World War One around World War One, Harlem was the third largest Jewish community in the entire world. Lower East Side was number one with three hundred fifty thousand people. Lamented Warsaw had a few less. And Harlem had 178,000 Jews. Wow, yeah, wow. So this was not an incidental community, very special community. And again, the entree was study blacks and Jews, but there's much more Jewish to this story than uh, just the black Jewish experience, which is very important to me too. Before we get to uh, Harlem itself, let me just ask you quickly, just in general, about if you have anything just to say in general about American um, Judaism in the late 19th, early 20th century. So when I think about the two and a quarter million Jews who come to America between 1880 and World War I, what comes to mind is a very important statement made by Rabbi Israel Mayer HaKohen Kagan, better known to everyone as the Chafetz Chaim lived a very, very long life, by the way, and was very mocked, by the way, on telling the truth, no lush and horror. So this was a bit of lush and horror, or maybe an admonition. 1893, he makes a statement. He says, don't come to America. America is a trafe land where even the stones are impure. And if you hope for the survival of Yiddishkeit, don't come here. And he says, by the way, if you've come here because of your desire for economic mobility, he doesn't say pogroms, it's sort of interesting. You should turn around and go back to Eastern Europe because only there can you give your son, and I'll engender it, say your son and daughter, a proper Jewish upbringing, okay? So those who, now we don't know how many people heard what he said. This was not a Pesach, this was his statement. But if you believed in what he said, don't come to America, then you don't come to America. So those who come to America across a religious spectrum, yes, there are atheists and socialists who are anti-religious. You, you're making a decision to, to see whether or not Judaism can survive in a free and open society. 
And as I look at my work, one of the things I'm asking myself is, well, how did Jews try to preserve their old ways or modify their own ways as they adjust to America? I wrote an article uh, called Resistors and Accommodators about 25 years ago. And I hate to brag. No, that's not true. But one of the things I like to say is that article, Resistors and Accommodators, was a profile of the Orthodox rabbinate in America. And I tried to plot, place every rabbi I knew within a spectrum of resistance to America, to accommodation of America, making the argument that for the longest time, if you resist too much, you may end up with no one with you. And if you accommodate too much, you may end up no longer being an Orthodox rabbi. I. I don't want to go into all those details because that's a whole different story. And your, your viewers can plot every rabbi on that. But it's inspired a lot of people to do work on orthodoxy in America, looking at resistors and accommodators. So Chafetz Chaim was an arch resistor. He didn't want anyone to come here, you know. Uh, and there are Jews who do go back, by the way. They go back because they fail in America. They go back because they find that they can't live a religious life. But most people stay and try to, make, try to make a Jewish life in America. It's a very challenging topic, and uh, you know it ser has served me well for, thank God, almost a uh, half century writing about that subject. But I think at that time when he said it, though, like you're saying, there wasn't a lot of religious life here. It was only much later that there was more religious, right? Later on. Well, it depends how you define religious life, okay? That's one of my points. So, look, by that time, there are... Uh, all sorts of Orthodox synagogues on the Lower East Side, Yomim Noreim, Lanzmanshaft Synagogue, you might call them shtibbles today. There are hundreds of shtibbles. Uh, uh, as far as a yeshiva world is concerned, uh, in 1893, it's only beginning. There's only one small uh, yeshiva in America that uh, attempts to recreate on American soil the world of Eastern Europe. It's called Yeshivas Itzchayim. Do you know what ever happened to that yeshiva? It's called Yeshiva University. Okay. Now, whatever you think of Yeshiva University, it's evolved immensely since that small yeshiva on the Lower East Side. So religious life, again, it depends what, how you define religious life. Um, one of the great obstacles maintaining religious life is the fact that uh, the blue laws exist, making it uh, difficult to observe Shabbat if you want to advance in America. And uh, I write a lot about that. I write about families. Uh, maybe some of your viewers will disagree with me, and that's fine. These, these are families who are Shomer Shabbos, except the prime breadwinner works on Shabbos. How do you define that person? in terms of his religious or her religious values. It's a very complicated question, which I try to untangle as best I can. Right, so we can leave that for a different time and people okay. can read your other books and it's that, right. So, so we'll get to Harlem. Um, like you said, today it's not known for its Jewish community, but once, as you alluded to, wow, it was one of the largest Jewish communities in America and the world. So a broad, I think we should just start off just in general, a broad overview of, of Harlem, of the Jews of Harlem, of when it was established, the size of the community, etc. Okay, so the beginnings of the Harlem Jewish community go back to 1870, where a group, a pioneer group of German-American Jews leave the Lower East Side, and they move up to what you might call a suburban locale, although it's within the city. By the way, the city of New York at that point was Manhattan and half of what becomes the Bronx. So they move up, they are merchants, they're small-time merchants, and they're living away from the, the Lower East Side. And that's my first question. When you leave the Lower East Side as a German-American Jew, what do you do in terms of maintaining your traditions? And if you lived up there in the 1870s, to get to the Lower East Side, to get down to Battery, what becomes Battery Park, only way you can get down there is by horse-drawn omnibus, and during the summer, there's a steamboat. And you know it takes between 45 minutes and an hour to get from uptown to downtown. Today, it, it takes 45 minutes to an hour during rush hour to do the same thing, okay? So it begins as a German community. But here come the East European Jews 
in the 1880s. Oh, in 1879, very important uh, change takes place in the, uh, in the city. The city starts building elevated railroads, the L's, to make it possible for Germans to move out and the Irish to move out as the city expands. But by the 1880s, East European Jews coming into America, some of them are moving up to Harlem. And by, as I mentioned a moment ago, by the turn of the 20th century, there are about 100,000 Jews in Harlem. And by 1917, uh, you have close to 180,000 Jews living in Harlem. And the point I make in my book is that the Jews who come to Harlem are East European Jews who replace the Germans who move further on, is that there are those Jews who move up to Harlem because they've made it in America and they want to live away from the Lower East Side. And then there are Jews like my family who are pushed out of the Lower East Side because of urban renewal efforts, which go haywire. I'll just give you one example. If you want, you know, uh, went down to Lower East Side a couple of weeks ago to take pictures because I wanted to give my students a, uh, a, uh, a virtual tour of the old neighborhood. And I hadn't been down there in 18 months. I couldn't believe how much change took place. But if you look at the parks on the Lower East Side, they were built around the turn of the 20th century to make it possible for Jews and others to have a little bit of fresher luft, some, you know, some air living in tenements. Great idea. But when you build a park like Seward Park or Grand Street Park or Mulberry Bend Park, you tear down tenements and uh, where the poor people go. And again, if you think this is a 1900 story, it's not alone. It's a 21st century story in terms of gentrification. So a lot of your people might not believe that some gentrification takes place downtown. So when the Guraks arrive in 03, I have here my grandfather's immigration papers. Um, there's really no room for them. So they move up to Harlem and live a very different life from their friends who live further west. So when I give lectures about Harlem and people say, oh, I got a relative from Harlem. I say, where did your Zader or your great grandparents live? Based upon the street they lived on, the avenue, I can say whether they're doing well or doing poorly. If you live on Third Avenue, you're doing horribly. You live like the Gorox and Park Avenue, you're doing a little bit better. And if you're living on Fifth Avenue or Sixth Avenue, you're, you're very affluent. You're Levinsky's Jews. I wanted to call one of my chapters, Levinsky's Jews Have Risen. But it had a Christological overtone to it that I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to turn off all my Jewish readers in all seriousness. Anyway, so that's the story. As of World War I, third largest Jewish community. Then after World War I, Jews depart for a variety of reasons. And they moved to new neighborhoods in the city. They moved to Washington Heights before, before the German Jews come because of Hitler. They moved to the West Side. They moved to the Bronx. Uh, and they moved to Brooklyn. Although there's a Brooklyn Jewish community at the same time. Uh, one of the only places they don't move to is uh, Forest Hills, which was off limits to Jews due to anti-Semitism. And I always make the joke, well, today, Forest Hills is off limits to Gentiles. But that's not true anymore because uh, Forest Hills has become quite a multicultural neighborhood. Uh, um, Israelis, Bangladeshis, Indians, Malaysians, blacks, whites, all living in that. If you drive those streets, you see the, the street signs, which medieval historians can't do, but I can do. I can actually show where people lived. So that's the basic story of Harlem. Now, two two questions to you. First of all, you alluded just maybe if you can give some, not all, some reasons just for listeners to understand why did that happen? Why did it just fall apart or everyone left, so to speak, or gradually? And also, did anyone, I'm just curious, did any anyone, were, were there people leaving New York? Were they going to the greater New York area out of New York? Well, was, if you're talking about suburbanization of Jews, like Jews moving to the five towns or Jews moving to... Uh, uh, Westchester, of course, Bronxville was off limits to Jews, or Jews moving to Bergen County. That's a post-World War II phenomenon. So if Jews are leaving during the so-called interwar period from 1920 to 1929, here's the migration pattern. 
you move from the Lower East Side or Harlem or early Williamsburg or early Brownsville to these new neighborhoods, and you do as well as you can, as fast as you can, until 1929. Then everything stops. Something gets in the way. Two things get in the way. The Depression and, of course, World War II. Then after World War II, um, and I deal with this in another one of my books, which follows the Harlem story called Jews uh, in Gotham. Jews move uh, to suburban areas due to, and one of the influences, very important influence, is the fact that um, in 1944, the Congress passes one of the most important pieces of legislation called the Servicemen's Readjustment Act, better known as the GI Bill which says that if you were honorably discharged, if you served America honorably during World War II, we will help you fulfill the American dream. And the American dream is to own your own home. And that leads to suburbanization. And Jews move, among other places, to Levittown, uh, opened by a uh, a Jew named Levitt. And uh, by the way, the Orthodox migration to suburbia is a little bit later, like the five towns uh, begins as a not an orthodox community, uh, but obviously things change later on. Uh, so that's the migration pattern. And Jews leave Harlem because I argue, uh, and it's a complicated story, not so much because of prejudice against blacks, but they're doing better. They're living a, they're living, uh, they're leading, excuse me, a more economically mobile area to go to places like the Grand Concourse or Eastern Parkway or places like that. So it's a complicated story, but that's one of the uh, the dimensions. Maybe we'll get back to the Black Jewish tale later on, but th- that's the migration pattern. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the religious, the Orthodox, the from the from what was from life like in Harlem, and how many uh, from people were there. And with that, I guess you could talk about the shuls, the institutions, the Talmud Torah, uptown Talmud Torah. How many students? All all of that you can talk about now, perhaps. Okay, I'm not exactly sure how the how to define what a what a from community is. Okay, because if there's anything I emphasize in my work is the complexity of Orthodox identity. But statistically speaking, if you think of East Harlem, the poor neighborhood, you have literally thousands of small shtibbles based upon the hometown that Jews came from. Kilak, Kedosha, Anshe, fill in the blank for the town. Or in terms of my my Zetas shul, he didn't have a shul. I mean, he davened in a in a storefront. There was no big shul. He belonged to the Homler's old Homler Old Men's Association from Jews of Homel or Gomel in White Russia. My father belonged to the Homler Young Men's Association. You know, sadly, if you want to see where they are today, they're all in Lodi, New Jersey, in the cemetery. But this that's the small shuls, right? If you lived in central Harlem, I'm defining that as north of 110th Street. If you can visualize this, if we had a map uh, west of Fifth Avenue, you've got a number of landmark synagogues of Jews who've made it and moved uptown. The synagogues are Orthodox. You notice, I, I don't know about the religious values of the Jews who live there, but it's of a very different texture in terms of their attitudes towards synagogue attendance, okay? So let me just mention two institutions that are very important for my book. The first is Congregation Ohep Tzedek. So Ohep Tzedek begins on the Lower East Side as the first Hungarian American congregation. It is south of Houston Street, on Norfolk Street. Today, it is an art center, although the the mikvah is still in the basement, okay? Um, And then around 1905, it moves uptown and occupies a space on 116th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue. 
for many years, I did tours of Harlem, and I could show them the the building, which was Oopsetic's shul. Uh, I was just told that recently they tore down that building, so all I can show people now is pictures of that synagogue. Okay, so they have they have three uh, uh, religious leaders. The first is Rabbi Dr. Philip Hillel Klein, Hungarian Rav, a Talmud Chacham, who came with them from the Lower East Side. That's for the older generation. And legendarily, apart from being a great Talmud Chacham and not an English speaker, he was also a horrible Dashan. Uh, there is a memoir written by Ira Eisenstein, who is Mordechai Kaplan's son-in-law. Mordechai Kaplan also has a Harlem connection, by the way. Mordechai Kaplan, the famous or infamous Reconstructionist rabbi. I wrote a book about Kaplan, too. It all, it all comes from Harlem, you know? So Eisenstein says when, when, when uh, Klein got up to speak, there was a max, mass exodus of boys and men out of the shore, and the kids played box ball until the, the Roshah was over. Then they came back into shul, right? Now, this type of rabbi, a great Tamir Chacham, is not going to attract young people. So they have a second rabbi. His name is Bernard Drachman. I've written about him too. Arguably the first modern Orthodox rabbi in the 20th century who begins as a professor at the seminary, JTS, and ends up at yeshiva. I won't go into that. That's another whole hour. Okay. He's an English speaking rabbi. But the most famous of these three clerics is the Chazan, and that's Yasla Rosenblatt. Okay. When the Jews come to America from Eastern Europe, there's a great article written by Judah David Eisenstein, who was an Orthodox mosque on Lower East Side. And he says, when Jews came to America and he wanted to daven, there are two things that they didn't, didn't like. They didn't like decorum and they didn't like a famous cantor. They wanted a simple baltafilah who would relate them. They had a close personal relationship with the Almighty, right? Or as my father used to say, I like a cantor who moves along in the davening. Now, Uptown, as an attraction, Yosla Rosenblatt, a whole series of chazanim. There's a chazan craze in New York at that point. Yosla Rosenblatt is the most famous cantor of his era, and he's so famous, listen to this, that they sell tickets for his davening not only Yomim no Re'im, but also, but also during every four weeks, where he has to be in shul, he has to be in shul once every four weeks for Shabbos Mavorchim, Shabbos Mavorchim, you know, to inaugurate the new moon. As you know, if you've been in shul, you know, that's a nice cantorial piece. The rest of the time he's on the road doing cantorial, uh, cantorial concerts. He's also the voice of, in, in Al Jolson's, the jazz singer who lived near him in Harlem, around the corner, though never went to OZ. Uh, one of the most famous uh, literary figures in this period is Shalom Aleichem. When he dies, it's one of the great uh, American Jewish funerals of the time. It, the funeral begins in the Bronx where he passed away. Then he comes to Harlem and the cortege is in front of the shul. And Yosel Rosalbat comes out and does the Kelmale. Then he goes to the Lower East Side. And I believe he's buried in, uh, in Bayside. I could be wrong about that, but it's a very important moment. And so, so this, this is the way they hope to attract young people. Okay. Um, down the block, across the street, I have to mention, in 1917, an institution is established, a shul is established called the Institutional Synagogue. It is the first shul with a pool in America. I, I didn't make up that term, okay? Its rabbi was Herbert S. Goldstein. The patron was Harry Fischel. If anyone's listening or, li or hearing this, who's been at Yeshiva University, been to the old Beis HaMedrash, it's named after Harry Fischel. 
It's influenced by Mordechai Kaplan, while he's still an Orthodox rabbi. And the idea is that we hope people will come to pray. The way to get them to come to pray is to offer them things to play during the regular week. So you have an art room, a music room, a pool, a, a gymnasium, uh, a library, God spare us, and all these things, hoping that people will come and, and come to Davin, okay? So I don't know if you call this a firm community, to tell you the truth, right? There's a Harlem yeshiva, very small yeshiva, but that's not the tenor of, of orthodoxy during that time period. And remember, this challenge for American Jews to survive and advance in America makes Shabbos observance very, very difficult. Now, Harry Fischel, uh, Goldstein, a ghost writes a book for Harry Fischel called 40 Years of Struggle for a Principle. And the principle was you can make it in America without being Mahalo Shabbos. But that's a rarity, to tell you the truth. So that's a big part of the religious life. One last thing, I know I'm rolling on here, because once I talk about Harlem, I can't be quiet. The Uptown Talmud Torah. Um, I'm going to use my family experience one last time. My father went to a cheder, a one-room schoolhouse, with a very uh, poorly trained, poorly paid, and poorly motivated Rebbe, where my father learned very, very little about Yiddishkeit. And that was more than most kids got. Most kids had families who were not interested at all. And my father would come to Cheder and the Rebbe was, okay, Yankel, his name was uh, Yankel, became Jake, became Jack, American, Americanized name, uh, uh, recite Moda Ani, he would do that, he'd give the Rebbe a penny, and that was, his, that, was his, uh, that was his class. As a result of that, he became a great stickball player, really good athlete. Um, so the modern Talmud Torah was part of a string of Talmud Torahs. There was the downtown Talmud Torah, the Yorkville Talmud Torah, the uptown Talmud Torah, the Brooklyn Talmud Torah, the Stone Avenue Talmud Torah, the Salanta Talmud Torah, which today is the SAR Academy in Riverdale of all places, is a desire to create a, a school that will emulate pedagogically the hated enemy that the enemy was the public schools, which taught the kids three R's and one D, reading, writing, arithmetic, and D, disrespect for their parents' culture. And it's not a Jewish story. It's an immigrant story. And the idea is that we can teach Yiddishkeit using modern pedagogic methods for these types of kids. Now, some parents didn't like that and pushed back. But, you know, I have to tell you that... Uh, I'm enamored with Chabad. You see what I look like. I'm not a Chabadnik, although my children have been involved with Chabad, and I give them a lot of credit for so many things they do. Did you ever go to a Chabad convention or Shalochim dinner or a telephone? Well, they use all the most modern, most modern uh, audio-visual things you can think of to teach Yiddishkeit. So the method had to evolve even though the message remains the same. We're teaching Torah, but we're teaching Torah in a modern way. And I say it has to evolve. And one of the places where it evolves is in Harlem. So look what I got in Harlem, my friend. I got the Uptown Talmud Torah. I got the OZ. I have the Institutional Synagogue, all pieces of what becomes modern orthodoxy after World War I. So I hope I legitimize my study of, of Harlem here from a religious point of view but not everybody is religious in any way, shape, or form. There are also socialists and communists and people of that sort. Yeah, wow, that's a lot. So I, I just want to jump in a few, <laughs> a few, a few notes for the, for the listeners, and you can talk of what I'm saying. So first of all, Rabbi, Rabbi Bernard uh, Drachman, he, I, I, this is the Sfarim Chatter podcast, I'm the Sfarim guy, so he, I think he was the first English, first English, I'm assuming, of, of Rabbi Hirsch, Rabbi Hirsch's 19 letters. Still famous for that, you can still get that he translated that. Um, you mentioned J.D. Eisenstein, so he's a lot of svarim. He did Eitzur Midrashim, Eitzur Bikuchim, tons of svarim. They've actually, some of them have been redone. Um, he's still uh, famous for his svarim. And then uh, Harry Fisher, you mentioned, so there's that book that people can still read of his, and he was a big noted philanthropist. He also, I think, was was his son-in-law. I heard of Goldstein was his son-in-law. Did he, 
one of them, now we still have Mahon Harry Fischel in Eretz Yisrael, and they're right. still producing Svarim until today. I think, right. I don't know if Rabbi Goldstein said it up. I know they, they still, they're still publishing Svarim, so they've, they've redone Rishayim and various things they've done, so people may be familiar with them. Just a couple of the figures that you mentioned I wanted to pop in there. with. Well, that's true. Now, look, Goldstein is able to finance institutional synagogue because Harry Fischel has money. I'm not being critical, but that's that's the case. The other thing about Harry Fisher that's very interesting is he was referred to at, by his friends as the East European Jacob Schiff. For those who don't know who Jacob Schiff was, he was perhaps the leading German-American lay philanthropist in New York, okay? Reformed Jew. And... Fischer refers to himself as, I'm the East European Jacob Schiff. So what does he mean by that? He means that I, Fischer, am an observant Orthodox Jew. Uh, Schiff is a Reformed Jew. But we have one thing in common. We're concerned with Americanizing our fellow East European Jews so that they can fit in, fit into America. So one of the major benefactors of Uptown Talmud Torah, excuse me, is Schiff along with Harry Fisher. So it was a time where, again, they differed theologically. They, I don't know if Schiff ever invited Fisher to have dinner at his home. I doubt if he would have gone, but the reverse could have taken place. I don't know that. But Fischl, but Fischl is attacked by other Jews who say, you know what? You've forgotten who you are. You're becoming like them. Which I have to say one other thing about this. When I first started thinking about Harlem, it, one of the things I wanted to emphasize is what does it mean for East European Jews to move into the German neighborhood? Well, it turns out that if you have money and you're Americanized, even if you're Orthodox, you have relationship with them based upon the desire to be, to Americanize the East European immigrants. So Goldstein's very important. Goldstein is a disciple of Mordechai Kaplan and then a major antagonist of Mordechai Kaplan. And Bernard Drachman, Bernard Drachman begins his life as a reformed Jew. He goes to Germany to become a reformed rabbi and then he's Jose Bichuvan comes back to New York and, and becomes a, an Americanized Orthodox rabbi. And uh, he awaits the moment in time where there are enough East European youngsters who are estranged from the old line East European Orthodoxy to be a very central figure. And he ends up, he ends up in Harlem. So, uh, Yes, some very important figures on the religious tableau have their lives within Harlem. Okay, so so all of this, everything also we, we discussed, like I said, your book and, and your, your other books that are related, people can all check out more in depth. So the, the kind of the last thing I guess we'll get to for this uh, episode here in the podcast is, like you alluded to, the relationship between the Jewish community and then the African-American communities in Harlem, which is what Harlem today is, is known for. But like we said, there was a, a huge Jewish community. So talk about that, the relationship, how it developed, how it went, and just all of that. Okay, I'll give you a short version of a long story. In my opinion, Jewish attitudes towards Blacks can be defined in three, dif- three different types of attitudes. There are those who are antagonistic towards African-Americans. There are those who are very supportive of African-American needs and et cetera. And then there are people who just live their lives oblivious to the race issue. When Jews move up to Harlem in the affluent area, African-Americans for a variety of reasons, this is pre-World War I, uh, occupy the northern reaches of Harlem, north of 125th Street, south of the polo grounds of Blessed Memory, which is where the New York Giants played baseball until 1958. And within that area, and I, I was able to verify this by using census materials. You have to know, you have to be able to read the Yiddish press. You have to be able to look at archives. And you also have to look at census materials to quantify almost the entire white population 
is Jewish. Now, they don't identify as Jews because the census doesn't ask your religion. They ask your national origins. So Russians and Poles, we assume, are Jewish. There's a whole issue about that statistically, but I won't go into that. At the same time, when blacks try to move into Harlem, there are Jews who are part of a protective association that don't want blacks living in the neighborhood. So what's the Jewish attitude? It's a complex attitude. Now, World War I is a great turning point. After World War I, there are riots all over the United States against blacks initiated by white groups who've come back from World War I, the war to make the world safe for democracy, and find there are blacks in the neighborhood. There are riots in Newark, New Jersey, East St. Louis, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, Portland, Oregon, where there are very few blacks, right? The city fathers, and I say fathers because women couldn't vote till 1920, in their wisdom in New York, pass a law that says, if you build a, a multiple dwelling, an apartment building, in an underdeveloped area of the city, we'll make you, we will allow you to be free from income tax, from real estate taxes for 10 years. Under this mandate, all new neighborhoods are built, Upper West Side, Washington Heights, Grand Concourse, Eastern Parkway, Borough Park, Bensonhurst, Flatbush, uh, one of my late dear colleagues uh, wrote a book about Borough Park called From Suburb to Shtetl. His name was Egon Mayer. So you have all these new neighborhoods opening. Jews who are doing better move out of the neighborhoods of Harlem as they do from the Lower East Side and occupy the, uh, these new neighborhoods. Now, by 1930, Jews are almost completely out of Harlem. And again, from the Gurak story, right? Uh, by the time we get to 1930, the six boys, most of them, are, are working. My grandfather has died, but they have enough money to move their widowed mother and their sister to Davidson Avenue off the Grand Concourse. So they move out. Now, when Jews move out, African-Americans move in. Then the economic presence of Jews remains in Harlem until really the 1960s. Uh, due to the Harlem riots, which I say are not anti-Jewish. They don't say kill the Jews. They say kill the, the owner, and it's a big difference, okay? Uh, and again, I feel as if I'm giving short shrift to a very long story, but you see, there are different, there are different uh, gradations of Jewish reaction. During the Harlem Renaissance, there are Jews involved. George and Ira Gershwin are part of the Harlem Renaissance. The Apollo Theater, the great theater in Harlem, is owned by two Jews, uh, Brecker and Schiffman. At a time when places in Harlem, uh, your, your community may not know this, there were places in Harlem where blacks couldn't, couldn't be in those. The Cotton Club was off limits to blacks. There was a nefarious type of uh, appellation the blacks were in N heaven. I won't say what N means, upstairs. Brecker and Schiffman are integrationists. They put blacks and, and whites together. Complicated story, absolutely a complicated story. And you know, today Jews are returning to Harlem in significant numbers. Just last week, I did a, uh, a Zoom meeting with Kila Harlem a orthodox startup community that's celebrating its fourth uh, anniversary. Chabad's in Harlem, Chabad is everywhere. There are other startup communities and they're living pretty harmoniously with the African-Americans, many of whom didn't grow up in Harlem, but moved to Harlem as a gentrified neighborhood. So Harlem continues to be a fascinating story and I'm happy to be its, its historian, at least as far as Jews are concerned. So that's uh, very interesting. Like you said, that's only short. There's a lot more. So like I said, everything, read your book. And there's much more to talk about on this. I know we didn't do it justice, but uh, a little bit. So th the last thing I want to ask you as we wrap up is the current or future projects. Have you any current books coming out and or any future projects that you're working on now? Well, uh, uh, two years ago, I published a book about the neighborhood I grew up in, 
in the East Bronx called Parkchester. It's called Parkchester, a Bronx tale of race and ethnicity. And it's a study of a post-World War II community that was predominantly Irish and Jews, Italians, Germans. But until 1968, it was off limits to African-Americans. So again, the race story is part of that, uh, part of that story. And uh, in, a, in a prior conversation with you, I told you one of the challenges in doing this book is having lived there as a youngster from 1949 to 1974, uh, one of the challenges is when you write about where you lived, how you grew up, you have to constantly test yourself to see whether the truth you are telling is in fact the truth. And my wife and I and my children have lived in Riverdale for close to 40 years now. And there are a lot of Parkchester alumni who uh, live in that community. In fact, the school that, I'm, that I've been part of for 40 years has a significant number of people who grew up in Parkchester and moved to Riverdale and they wanted Dobbin together to continue a community existence. It almost sounds like why Jews Dobbin with each other. They want to speak to God and they also want to speak to their friends. Of course, not during Dobbin, of course, but in all seriousness, uh, it was a very important project and books done well. And um, on May 17th, God willing, 2021, a very small book is coming out called Lake Warbika, a community history. It's a summer community I've been part of for 70 years, which was started by a group of, believe it or not, of Jewish firefighters. This was a job that attracted Jews during, along with the police department during the Great Depression. And my late father was a, uh, was a firefighter. So again, if you've heard what I've said, my family tale gets caught up in all these things. And one of the challenges is to differentiate my story from what is the actual truth. And medieval historians don't have people sending them emails like I get and say, hey, wait a minute, buddy, the story is not exactly the way you tell it, which leads me to write second and third editions of my book, My Medieval and Ancient Jewish History Historians don't have that advantage and dilemma, which I cultivate, welcome, and I deal with as best I can. Right. So I'm going uh, to, I'm going to link to the, the books we mentioned, and I'm not sure when this will be posted. So it might even be posted after uh, May 17th when, you, when your new book will be out. So I'll link to that as well. Okay. And uh, like I said, I will not link to all of your books. There's too many. So anybody wants to see even more of your books, your book on sports and, and, and Jews, so they can Put your name into Amazon or Google. It will come up. All the books are there. So, But I, I will link to the ones we discussed. I will put in the show's notes so people can see the links. You can link it to NYU Press uh, for the Harlem book and the Parkchester book. That's for sure. And uh, hey, it was a lot of fun talking about my work. And thanks for inviting me. And I hope your audience has enjoyed this, learned a little bit about uh, American Jewish history and collaterally a little bit about the author himself. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, uh, thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me.